like Fry playing the holophone. It's like a Fiona Apple song. Let's go snowboarding. I'll never join you. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that needs more than a handsome smile and a hand on the gear stick. I'm Kelly Anakin. <laughs> and I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I'm still not a traditionalist. The king should not rely on my support. Who brought the king into this? <laughs> uh, England. But they're not part of this country anymore. How many times do we have to listen to <laughs> Hamilton? More. <laughs> <laughs> You're never satisfied. <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. This is going to be our recap of Downton Abbey Series 6, Episode 4. Mm-hmm. A New Hope. The Downton Awakens. Oh, right. <laughs> I keep forgetting that The Force Awakens is Episode 7. Yeah. Boy, the numbers in the chronology of the Star Wars series, not great for someone who's not good at math. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we, uh, are gonna do that. Yes. And, uh, we will first share a telegram from one of our cousins. It's Ooh. our cousin of the week. <gasps> uh, this is a bit ahead of when we would normally record. Right. As Tom has some travel coming up. Uh, so this is still about episode two. Yes. Versus episode three. Right. Um, but it's okay. We're all gonna get through this. <laughs> Boy, this is like the Star Wars chronology. Shh. <laughs> You're like a dolphin or something. I don't know what happened. Was that a movie about a bus or something? You know that one? It's like environmentalism and yeah, Spock and the... Yeah, Star Trek. Yeah, and a dolphin. Episode four. Right? The Yeah, the the Voyage Home, I believe it was I called. No. Yeah. God. I'm sorry. I don't get Star Trek. No, I know you like, don't. Like, at all. Yeah. Like, I liked Zachary Quinto as Spock, and literally everyone I have said that to has slapped me. <laughs> And I'm like, illogical. <laughs> See, I know enough. Yeah, no, you can get by. I know enough to charm my way out of a convention without getting <laughs> murdered. That happens a lot. Be that as it may. <laughs> Our cousin of the week, Cousin Judy, writes, Hello, cousins. I am writing to you in regards to your question about home farms on your last podcast. Home farms are the part of the estate of a great house where all the fruits, vegetables, flowers, and the livestock that grace the family's table comes from every day. In last week's episode, when Mrs. Hughes asks Mrs. Patmore for her lists, these are items that cannot be grown or made on the home farm and must be bought. But all the eggs, butter, cream, veggies, etc. that they eat every day is mostly produced on the home farm. When watching the PBS broadcast, I noticed again that it is longer than the ITV broadcast by almost four minutes. Most of the additions are just a couple of extra lines of dialogue in certain scenes. I ran the two broadcasts together, one on my PC and one on my iPad. And the PBS broadcast is more like a director's cut of the show from the original version as shown on ITV. The extras appear at all notes approximate as the PBS player only shows time remaining. Oh, we're familiar with the PBS player. (laughs) 150, first breakfast scene, three extra lines, one each from Edith, Mary, and Carson. 515, meeting at the Dower House, three extra lines again from LG, the Dowager, and Isabel. 1040, Anna helping Lady Mary before bed. This scene was the biggest change, almost a full minute added to the beginning of the scene with the dialogue of shocking Mr. Finch. <laughs> 11 minutes, uh, more extra lines of dialogue between Baxter and Thomas after Andy leaves to clean the clocks. 1715, the other noticeable added scene of Molesley and Baxter walking down the hall after Thomas asked for time off for his interview. 32 minutes, Servants Hall after scene of Carson announcing the arrangements for servants to go to the fair. 
When they get up to leave the table, a couple of lines of dialogue between Carson and Mrs. Hughes. Great stuff, Kelly, about adoptions. However, I would add that rescuing a pet may be a better option than adopting a child, especially for single people, says a proud new cat mom. Looking forward to your next podcast, Cousin Judy, Comtesse Dion de Posca. <laughs> Thank you for that information. Yes. We always mean to try to compare and contrast, right. but the rigors of this podcast, plus my constantly increasing workload, mm-hmm. because I'm a glutton for punishment, <laughs> yeah, uh, generally means that we don't get around to it. So we'll post these um, if yeah. they are sent to us again Sure, um, and let you guys know what's going Just on. Just think, there's even more scenes of Mosley and Baxter talking that we could have seen. Be still my beat <laughs> If you would like to throw your hat in the ring to be Cousin of the Week, you can send us a telegram up yours downstairs at gmail.com send us a carrier pigeon ak tweet we're at five maggie smiths on twitter that's at five the number five maggie smiths or search up yours downstairs exclamation point (laughs) on facebook and send us a message yeah all right with the housekeeping out the way that's right r.i.p madge she's not dead she's (laughs) fine yeah she's working in a shop or something yeah shop in peace yeah (laughs) well sell in peace yeah no you're right uh let's dive right in let's Uh, So we see Branson walking down a road, wondering what the hell he's doing there. At breakfast, Branson explains that he didn't quarrel with his cousin or whatever, uh, but in the end, it was another country, and he'd taken Sibby away from her home. Like, he already moved to another country, and I guess Sibby wasn't born yet. Well, yeah. But he took the fetal Sibby away from her home. (laughs) He did. Then he got scared. Lord Grantham wishes he had a photo of all their faces. Uh, Branson hopes that he didn't steal the Carson's thunder, and LG is sure he didn't. I am less sure, given that he interrupted the toast to the bride and groom. Well, he's now uh, a member of the gentry. Yeah. So, you know, he's fine. Yeah, I guess that's true. He's more important than them, Tom. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Lord Grantham asks after Sibby. She is tired, but uh, glad to be there, apparently. Eat- I don't believe that those children <laughs> have any emotions. None whatsoever. Sibby might. Edith assumes that Branson will resume being... She's just up in the nursery singing, Sometimes you want to go, and everybody knows your name. I'll miss you, Norm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Edith assumes that Branson will resume being the estate agent, but Lord Grantham wants him to settle in before they start fighting. Uh, Branson just wants to do what's right for everyone, so Mary says to come by the uh, agent's office later. Lord Grantham asks Thomas about Carson... And they got a telegram from them, and Mary is like, you would think they could have done better than Scarsborough. On the prince's <laughs> ransom that you pay them? I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. And it, like, Mary's never been this clueless. Right. It's just like Julian Fellows completely forgot what she was like. Yeah. Because I'm not saying she wouldn't be bitchy. Right. But she would have said something about, like, it being Mrs. Hughes's idea. Yeah. You know? Or, or something. Yeah. Just not that they're just being, you know... Common. Yeah. Because they are. That's they're their whole servants. point. Yeah. They're not you. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, also, apparently, Rosamond is coming for dinner, and Edith supposes that the reason is to get involved in the hospital dispute, and Mary says that, well, Rosamond will always side against grannies, so yeah. Well, as our last uh, cousin of the week pointed out, Rosamond's had a hard life. Yeah. Fiscally solvent, but hard. <laughs> yes. Mrs. Patmore tells Baxter that Officer Bummer is stopping by later. Oh, God. 
good. Yeah. What a delight what to hear. What don't you fucking understand, <laughs> Baron Fellows? We don't want Officer Bummer. No. We don't want Baxter. No. If Baxter just wasn't in any more episodes, no one would notice. Or just kind of in the background, occasionally walking through walls. Like- yeah, why can't you be the new Madge? <laughs> yeah, there Spoken we go. of and yet never seen. Mm-hmm. The bell rings for Baxter. Great. Andy, who is also there in the room, uh, wonders what Officer Bummer wants. And Anna says that it makes a nice change that he's not there to see them. <laughs> and Mr. Bates says it's nice to joke about it. Is it? Uh, it's hard to say. Bates has never told a joke in his life. <laughs> <laughs> no, he told one. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he told one in series one. I'm sure he did. Yeah. He was like, ho, ho, this leg brace sure is an Iron Maiden. Bazinga. <laughs> I'll try. Uh, we we have the scripts for that. We can we can God, check. That was such a God. I know this is just going to be how it is. Yeah, no, it is. I think we've already said that. I'll stop apologizing. I'll <laughs> yeah. own my lived experience. <laughs> anyway, Thomas says it's no joke to Baxter that Officer Bummer's showing up, and he tells Mrs. Patmore to run any future invitations by him because he's an acting butler. Mrs. Patmore is like the hell. <laughs> yeah, she's like, for five minutes, you're the acting butler. Yeah, yeah you're acting like the butler. <laughs> McGee reads a letter Spratt brought to her, uh, tells Baxter that the Dowager wants to bring Lady Shackleton to dinner as an ally, and Baxter doesn't respond, because she may be a ghost. Ghost Baxter. <laughs> Still bored yeah. by that concept. No, I know. It just would fit her personality better, I think. I just feel like... All right, all right. This season, she's on uh, Being Human. <laughs> In the office of the estate agent, which is Mary, Mary asks Branson if he wants to be joint agent with her, but he says he needs to find something that isn't just about the estate, which is like, why did you move back to it then? Yeah. Because almost everyone else has a job that's only about the estate. Right. That's sort and of... And being part of this family. That's sort of the whole point of the estate. It's like he wants to have his cake and be a member of the nobility as well. Yeah, he sure does. He says he's changed. He's still not a traditionalist and the king shouldn't rely on his support, which <laughs> I'm sure is keeping King George <laughs> yeah. up nights. Yeah. In London, King he's just spit out his tea. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up in cold sweats in the middle of the night. Remember that chappy? That chauffeur chappy? That burned down that house, but then we let that go for some reason. <laughs> I was relying on his support. <laughs> There's a great disturbance <laughs> in the Empire. <laughs> anyway, he doesn't feel the same way about capitalism, at least American capitalism, which is like, dude, you've never given a shit about capitalism. You were a socialist. He was, but he's changed, Kelly. <sighs> I j- ah. Because it's like if we had any indication that this was all a front just so, like, Sibby could go to private school, <laughs> I'd kind of be like, okay, whatevs. Yeah, that'd be something. But it's just not. He's yeah. like, well, my wife died. Um, I cease to have a personality. He's like a or manic you- pixie dream girl, like, after yeah, the guy goes away. Yeah, or just be straight up about it, being like, you know what? I got used to being really rich, and I'm just going to abandon it. Like, I was just like, I went to Boston. I was like, nope, rather be rich, yeah. you know? Like, just own it. No, and it's like, I would I would still be annoyed by it. Yeah. But that's, look, that's a perfectly logical trajectory to go from being a socialist revolutionary mm-hmm. to being very conservative. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen to Bernie Sanders any day now. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
running out of time. <laughs> uh, oh man, I saw this comedy show last night and the guy was telling a joke about Bernie Sanders winning the Powerball <laughs> and being like, oh, take, I can't do a good Bernie Sanders right. impression, but she's like, take the money. I, I, I worked my whole life not to be part of the 1%. <laughs> it belongs to the people. His name's Josh Androsky. Yeah. Follow on Twitter at shutupandrosky <laughs> if you would like to. Uh, very funny guy. Once was on the prices right on mushrooms. <laughs> Said he was a skateboard rabbi. <laughs> that story can be found somewhere on the Gawker network and he now works for Vice. So. Okay. Josh Androsky. You just, you've got just gained a half dozen people that care about you. Yeah, you just got an inexplicable shout out. <laughs> I just like thinking about Bernie Sanders and the Powerball <laughs> and your father. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mary says that she wants what Branson wants. Ideally, no more homely liberals, but even then, he should just please himself. But no homely liberals. Like, you're serious. <laughs> no more of that. Yeah. Uh, Branson asks if she regrets dismissing her suitors whose contracts were not renewed <laughs> or Downton Abbey. So clearly she does not. Yeah. Because Julian Fellows can't imagine writing a character who is not the villain who disagrees with him in any material way. <laughs> Patmore shows Officer Bummer into the Carson cave. Baxter asks if this is about the Bateses. No! I'll never join you! <laughs> but he says, no, they're off the hook. Unlike like, us. Yeah. <laughs> continually have to be reminded no this is okay so this is like you know when somebody goes through a trauma Mm -hmm. and then afterward like that's all anybody wants to talk about even they're like dude i'm trying to get like get my ged like i'm bit like i don't want to talk about this anymore right but people like but like what about it though you know yeah anyway sarge asks if baxter would like to be questioned alone uh, and Patmore says that Hughes wouldn't like it, but Baxter's asked Mosley to accompany her, so they... Uh, well, that's practically alone. <laughs> right. They switch places. Uh, Officer Bummer says... Switch! Laces! <laughs> Officer Bummer <laughs> says it's about Coyle. He is out on bail for theft, along with a young woman who's been set up to take the fall. Officer Bummer says they know his pattern, and they know that she was, you know, part of his pattern. And they want her to testify as a character witness to protect young women from him in the future. He says he'll leave her to consider it. And Mosley suggests that Coyle was a handsome devil. That's, uh, I mean. You know, you don't have to be a handsome devil to enter into abusive, uh, you know, one-sided relationships with women. Right. Just, you know, fact. Yeah. Lifetime. That's a good point. Uh, you know. All you I mean, have to do is neg them. <laughs> right. But, you know, from Olsley's perspective, everybody seems like a handsome devil. That's true. <laughs> God damn it. I'm so sorry, Kevin Doyle. Yeah. Just nagged him. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> anyway, he thinks she should testify, but Baxter is reluctant for no particular reason. And Mosley says that quote about that all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Which, fun fact, nobody actually knows where that quote originated. Satan. <laughs> It's all part of his long con. <laughs> He's like, I'll whip him up into a frenzy, even though no, you know, free will exists and everything is predetermined, as John Calvin said. He's right? Like, yeah, John Calvin. Okay. Yeah. He's like, the only thing that could defeat me is good men doing nothing. I'll start this saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Satan, you're such a card. <laughs> a tarot card in fact <laughs> that, that, that's true number 15 <laughs> in the library 
McGee walks in and tells Lord Grantham that Lady Shackleton is asked to bring her nephew, and McGee didn't want to put the Dowager's back up. And Lord Grantham says that the Dowager is an old intriguer, which, like, yeah, we know, yeah. dude. It's We've all six. seen Ever After <laughs> and also this show. <laughs> McGee doesn't know the nephew. And Branson walks in and announces that people that we've never heard of are moving out of a cottage. Right. And McGee wants to know if they can discuss Pig Farm. And she doesn't see why they couldn't get a new tenant. But Branson says it makes more sense for them to take it over. McGee says they'll still have some tenants, which reminds LG that he wants to see some new planting. And he asks Branson along. And Branson's like, we know who's really doing the planting. <laughs> um, he wouldn't. It's, it's fair cloth. Yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say this. <laughs> no, at you're this right. Point. That's He'd a good be like, point. great, slave labor, whatever. Yeah. All bets are off. My soul is officially on the market. <laughs> He's like, I oppose the Bank of the United States. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> listen, we listen to Hamilton a lot. <laughs> yeah. I took a break. Took a break. <laughs> and then I, I hit it hard uh, in the last two days. So, yeah. you know. Here we are. Let's work. Don't throw away your shot. <laughs> anyway, Branson says he'll go look at this planting after he makes a call. Just just a call. <laughs> I just made a call. <laughs> McGee says Lord Grantham is happy that Branson is back. Lord Grantham agrees. Again, please, more more <laughs> scenes of characters telling other characters how they obviously feel, which we can see yeah. because despite <laughs> the toilet paper you've given them in lieu of a script, uh, they're all still quite good actors. Indeed. In Mary's room, Anna is helping her pack. Mary asks how the new maids are, and Anna says nice, but they don't live in, so they don't really get to know They're them. They're no match. <laughs> here, here. Mary hopes that Anna's not working too hard, and Anna says that she's fine, but thickening up, and Bates will think she ate all the pies, which is, A, a weird thing to say, and then, B, I'm like, I hope they weren't poisoned. <laughs> Remember that lady? Yeah. No? All right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the poison pies will slim me right down. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Anna won't tell Bates until she knows that it will be fine, and then Bates comes in. Mary wants Molesley and Andy to take the cases down, but they're both down in the village. Mary says that Carson wouldn't have allowed that. Uh, would he not have? Right. Because literally every time that anybody has asked him to go to the village for the past three seasons, he's like, of course, none right. of us have to do any work anymore. Yeah. We've been nominated for BAFTAs. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of sounded like Aslan there somehow. I don't know. Is Carson not the Aslan of this show? No, that's a good point. Yeah, um, Stick that in your Turkish delight and smoke <laughs> it. Well, and also, because then uh, Bates is like, oh, when the cat's away. But I'm like, you know what? Actually, I would find Thomas less likely to allow them to I go agree. to the village. I could see him letting Andy have special privileges. Yeah, that's true. Because he's got a boner for him or whatever. Yeah. Or does he? <sighs> All right, let's just try to pick up the shattered pieces of all these characters the best that we can. So, yeah, Mary asks if Bates can manage because she says the cases are too heavy for Anna, which is, of course, suspicious. Yeah, way to keep a secret. Oh, well, oh yeah. and where's Bates's, you know, cane and limp in this scene? <laughs> He's just, you know, able to just bench press all of Lady Mary's crap. At the Dower House, Lady Shackleton. Yay! Woo! We just watched Sense and Sensibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. We got to pour one out. Yeah. For Alan Rickman. Yeah. Whew. Oh, man. Alan Rickman. Just wow. Yeah. 
first Bowie, then Rickman. It's just been a rough couple of weeks. It has so been. if you're a, you know, distinguished British artist, uh, please just hold on. Yeah. For just a little longer. Just hang in there. Like, yeah. you know. Although now that we've said that, like in like three months, just <laughs> Michael Gambon goes down. Ian McDiarmand. Uh, that guy that played Bilbo Baggins. Ian Holm. Ian Holm, yes. Just boom, boom, boom. Just dominoes. Yeah. Meanwhile, the women are fine. Yeah. Vanessa Redgrave, Maggie Smith, Helen Mirren, Judy Dench. They're mm-hmm. like, we're going to live forever. <laughs> the queen has decreed it. Let's go snowboarding. It's much better to be a dame. <laughs> Upon dames is confirmed the power of immortality. <laughs> Let's all do a movie about old women getting high. <laughs> uh, did they do that? Somebody. They, there was a movie like yeah. that once. I Yeah, there was. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll find out what that was, <laughs> we and then will, we'll yes. get high and watch it. <laughs> okay. Um, Lady Shackleton. Okay, yeah. sorry. Lady Shackleton thanks the Dowager for letting her bring Henry, who is her nephew who is coming to dinner. Uh, the Dowager is grumpy, hmm. and Lady Shackleton says that her nephew is there only to see some horrid racing car. He apparently doesn't like her daughter-in-law, uh, but who does? This has been a running theme, though, yeah. that she has a terrible daughter-in-law. Yeah, that's true. The Dowager asks if Lady Shackleton understands the job that she does, uh, but asks why they oppose the change in the village. And the Dowager says that it's because they can't protect the interests of the village and asks if Lady Shackleton is there to help or irritate. Lady Shackleton has her own estate. Right. Like... She's and got her own business. Like, she has is, no power here. Be gone. Before somebody <laughs> drops the house on you. Yeah, like, she she's there. She came to help you. Maybe, like, give her a break. Yeah. Take a break. <laughs> right. Run away with us to the dinner. <laughs> At my estate. There's a hospital I know <laughs> in a nearby village. York wants to come down so they can pillage. <laughs> Thomas enters the servants' hall and enjoys <clears throat> watching everybody stand up when he does. Uh, he asks for volunteers to clean the cottages the, to clean the cottage that the Carsons will be staying in, and Andy volunteers. Daisy wishes that the Carsons could live in their own home, but the builders are still in that home apparently. Mosley wonders if they'll have to call Hughes Mrs. Carson again. Boy, people are just all about it. Yeah. Uh, and Daisy, as always, thinks that this would be a great time to talk about how Mason is definitely getting that new farm. This reminds me of me recently. <laughs> when I thought I was pregnant and I told a bunch of people and then it turned out I wasn't pregnant. And I was like, this is the closest I'll ever be to being a hapster. <laughs> anyway, it's a good lesson for Daisy, myself, and all of you. <laughs> Never tell anyone anything <laughs> until you've had it for at least a couple of years. Okay. Okay. Thomas says that he heard the family saying that they'll farm the land themselves. Daisy gets upset, and Molesley points out that they never actually promised her anything, but Daisy heads out. Andy gets up to go to the cottage and declines Thomas's company. Mosley says that Andy must have something to think through. Thomas tells Mosley to keep his pity because he needs it more. And Andy is a moron. He doesn't have anything to think through. Yeah. (laughs) He's around. He's just like, uh, farms. No, that's the thing. How do you think? I mean, I guess at the time, but I mean, the cities weren't quite as filthy as they once were. Yeah. But it's like there's nothing to do out here. I know. 
Edith is driving Rosamond to the house, presumably from the train station, mm-hmm. although we did not get a pointless scene of that. <laughs> Thank you very much. She says that McGee and the Dowager can't have a public quarrel or they'll both be asked to resign from the board, uh, which makes me wonder how powerful are they? Right. Like, I don't understand the, like, functionings of this board. Nor do I. Edith asks if Rosamond has any news, and she does. She's now a trustee of Hillcroft, a college for clean, decent, poor women, (laughs) as opposed to those filthy beggars who don't have any manners. Right. Well, they go to the Whore Institute. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to suggest Edith as a trustee as well, and the treasurer lives near Downton, and they'll meet him while they're there. His name is John Harding, and Rosamond likes the sound of him. So this leads to a variety of questions. Such as, shouldn't the treasurer for the college live within like a hundred miles of the college? Does that seem odd? Uh, no. Did she say where it is? It's in London. I mean, oh, it's a okay, real college. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I just assumed it was made up. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure. Unless like Hillman on the Cosby Show. Unless it's just in a real neighborhood. But I thought it was. Anyway, I looked up the. It is in a real place at least, okay. and it's in London. Don't spoil our recurring segment. <laughs> they have so little look forward to these days. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and also should not lady, uh, should not Rosamond as a trustee have perhaps met the treasurer at some point nah. rather than simply liking the sound no of way. him? Hey, why? Come so, on. I, look, She's just a woman. I don't know why I bother asking. <laughs> Which brings us <laughs> to the first of our two recurring segments. Tom repeats history with our resident collegiate collaborator, Tom. Tom, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Hope you didn't have any trouble finding parts. <laughs> so uh, I was just looking up sort of the history of women's colleges in Britain. Uh, and most of I, I found a nice article. It's mostly about Oxbridge. But people have been asking for it for as, since as early as the 1600s. But it really got started with the Langham Place Group which was a uh, early feminist group in around 1860. And that was named – they started a – uh, the English Women's Journal, which was published from Langham Place. So that's how they got their name. Uh, and then there's a, a famous story that one day while brushing their hair, three members of the group, Emily Davies and Elizabeth and Millicent Garrett, they were chattering, which seems like a gendered word there, about the problems facing women and decided that they would have to do something about it. It's not as bad as like, you know, shrieking. Well, true. Carping. Gossiping. Weeping. Uh, mm-hmm. Weeping. <laughs> yeah. So Emily agreed to open the universities to women. Elizabeth was assigned to open up the professions, beginning with medicine. And Millicent, who was 13 at the time, was given the task of winning the vote. That's a big task for a 13-year-old. <laughs> yes, it Jesus. is. Uh, How'd she do? Uh, well, uh, as we've learned, this was about 1860, and oh, they did not get man. it uh, that soon. But, I mean, you know, she fought for it. Was and... it within Millicent's lifetime? Uh, that's a good question. Let's Let's find out. <gasps> I love when we have to do research during the show. <laughs> I actually hate it. Because it's like I have to like do something to fill the time you while you're typing. Don't necessarily. Typing. typing. <laughs> uh, she died in August of 1929. So, so barely? Barely, yeah. Man. Yep. Better than Alice Paul dying before the Equal Rights Amendment was passed, which it never has been. Well, that's a good point. It was her birthday recently. Oh. I love Alice Paul. I know you do. So anyway, 
yeah, so they got started on things, and of, of course, for a lot of people at the time, they were making the argument that higher education was necessary for women just to make them better at woman stuff, you know, so better better teachers, better mothers. Well, you know, it's the soft sell. Right. Well, and it was, it's how you get your foot in the door. Yeah, and the frustration for a lot of women was that they were all only taught by governesses who themselves, being women, had not been taught well, and it was just this perpetuating thing. Mm-hmm. Which is brought up later in this episode. I believe. Right. I yeah, Mary I think says you're they right. were only taught French prejudices and dance steps. <laughs> yes. Which is ridiculous. Like you're the, you at least knew arithmetic. Right. Uh but a few people would make arguments that, you know, they just deserved equality in ed- education. Uh Francis Power Cobb read an advanced paper entitled University Degrees for w- w- Women and uh in her autobiography reports that every daily paper in London laughed at my demand and for a week or two I was the butt of universal ridicule. Uh, but women were doing it for themselves to an extent. They were starting lecture associations around the country. And finally, Emily Davies of the, you know, took up her task and set up Girton College, which was basically near Cambridge, but A, not close enough that there was any concern of, you know, fraternization mm-hmm. between the men and women. It was a few miles away. Uh, and it was only like semi-officially associated with it. Uh, and it was intended to be exactly like any of the other colleges. And they became a rivalry with Newnham Hall, which came uh, a different person, Mrs. Eleanor said Sidgwick, who had been doing one of those lecture groups and developed it into an actual uh, college because people kept wanting to come and they started wanting to stay there so that they wouldn't miss any of the lectures and it just developed into a whole thing. They were kind of critical of the whole university system in general, so that it were like, we're not going to imitate. Did they want to change it from semester to ovester, like that lesbian <laughs> and legally blonde? No, that at least not in any sources I've seen. You know, I used to think that was dumb, but now I think it sounds great. <laughs> Fair enough. Although you'd have to make it different, you know, it couldn't be like half, you know, you'd have to right. do it in 28 day increments. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of Ovesters. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe it'll make people more efficient. Maybe so. At Newnham College, uh, they let sort of women take longer at certain things and, and set their own pace more, that sort of thing. And so they kind of had a big rivalry with Girton, which was very much like, no, we have to show that we're exactly the same and we do everything at the exact same timetable, etc., etc. Uh, these places all were hated by most people. Really? You know? And in particular... Women doing stuff was <laughs> yeah, hated. Yeah. In particular, it was said that the the term Girton girl applied to a daughter could strike fear into a parent's heart. Uh, That's how my mom felt about Berkeley. Right. I think it was pretty much <laughs> the same deal there. Yeah. And look where I wound up. Yeah. And, you know, clergymen all over the country were lambasting it and condemning it and all that sort of thing, saying it was unchristian and dangerous. So they, of course, sought to project very conventional, uh, you know, femininity. They were all inspected as to their dress and appearance. I saw somewhere in here at some point they were weighed regularly. What? At these colleges. Oh, my God. That's like being a cast member on Sex in the City. <laughs> right. Well, because one of the uh, big arguments that people would make was that women were simply not medically suited. Uh, you know, they were the less robust sex. Particular concern was caused by the medical theory of menstrual disability, a belief that spawned a condition coined anorexia scholastica, which was believed to be a debilitating thinness and weakness resulting from too much mental stimulus, especially during menstruation. People are so fucking stupid. Yeah. (laughs) I just can't. No, and I I don't know. It's like it's, you know, because we're in an election cycle, whether Mm -hmm. we like it or not, apparently. (laughs) Right. And it's just like. 
at the same time, what doing this podcast has done for me personally, mm-hmm. just seeing the context of all this stuff and really gaining really without knowing just a very fundamental sense of how cultural shifts actually happen. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I'm observing them happening in real time in a way that I didn't in the past. Mm-hmm. Cause like, you know, you look at like the whole Trump thing, right? You're like, I, you know, perhaps before I would been like, I don't understand how this happened, but I'm like, no, I see how this happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, just hearing about, you know, the clergy railing about things. Right. I mean, they've been railing about things forever. Right. That's just, one just of their the jobs. The intersection of, you know, spirituality and religion and politics mm-hmm. and, you know, employment and education, just seeing how all that fits together mm-hmm. from this time period and others. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that sound dumb? No, that makes sense. You're just, you, you're just, you know, more, uh, Does this mean I awakened. can call myself a cultural critic now sure. on my resume? You can call yourself anybody can call themselves a cultural critic. That's true. You don't have to get a degree from Cambridge. Might help. <laughs> yeah, it probably would. <laughs> That's fair. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and actually, the women involved, Emily Davies and so on, were were concerned that this might actually be true. This anorexia scholastica, you know, and they thought that would damage the thing, so they did their own studies and were like, "Oh, haha, no, that was just mm-hmm. a complete bullshit." <laughs> There's a, a paragraph entitled "Mathematics Too Hard for Women." <laughs> yes, but for like individual women. <laughs> I told somebody at work the other day. I'm like, I'm bad. Like, I'm such a feminist that I am bad at math because I don't want people putting their expectations on me. Yeah, I don't know. I need to work that up. Yeah. Sorry, that wasn't a good joke. Yeah, well, that one's a work in progress. Yeah, the little peek behind the curtain there. Yeah, ugh, jokes are bad <laughs> before they're good. Ugh. Thanks. <laughs> I should never drink cold brew coffee. I should never drink cold brew coffee. I should never drink cold brew coffee. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in 1890, Philippa Fawcett of Newnham College beat the top male student in Cambridge in mathematics, uh, in the mathematics tripos, which was the sort of name of the final exam. And it was still it like at the, the end of, of um, Billy Madison? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> The puppy who ran away from home, or whatever it was called, anyway. Mm. Hey, kids, I I bet you thought that I was dead. That's a clown. Okay, I'm not really familiar with... Everyone who's seen Billy Madison, which is most people, are dying. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Uh, But even so... Uh, as late as 1912, some even women were still arguing that maybe teaching math to girls is like just you know not worth the effort. Yeah, God, women, women's worst enemies, except for men. Yeah. <laughs> now. These colleges, as I say, were only semi-related, so women were ta- taking the same courses and taking the same exams, but they did not get the same degrees. Uh, for a long time, the women were not awarded degrees on an equal basis to men at Cambridge until 1948, uh, partly because that having a degree at Cambridge gives you like voting rights into the governance of the institution, apparently. Uh, so it was all a very piecemeal thing, starting as early as 1881 and, and running, like I said, until 1948. Uh, it caused bitter controversy. Uh, and not only did it cause bitter controversy, but repeatedly, uh, at least twice, once in 1897 and once in 1921, uh, attempts to gain equality for women at Cambridge were shut down 
uh, leading to riots by men of like a celebratory nature, including like using a handcart as a battering dam, to, battering ram to knock down the gates of Newnham College. Uh, guys, you won. Right. But that's uh, dudes for you. Yeah, so the women after that, 1921, they were having to settle for, uh, it wasn't a degree, but it was a title of a degree, which was uh, referred to generally as a B.A. tit. <gasps> that is extremely insulting. Yes, it is. I believe that was the idea. Boy, that really takes my memory of fine arts down <laughs> a peg or two. Yeah, the good news is that in other colleges outside Oxbridge, there was equality sooner. Uh, the University of London and some, you know, Bedford College, some other places, they all got equality earlier. Than- well, Oxbridge was just very concerned that they wouldn't have an excuse to be all gay with each other anymore. I would imagine so, yeah. Uh, and so uh, at the present day, Cambridge is actually now the only remaining university that has single-sex colleges, but they are women's colleges. Uh-huh. They do not have any male-only colleges anymore. Girton, actually, the original is now mixed, but there were some later developed women's colleges that are still all female. Fascinating. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that was that was about all I had. Cool. Women's colleges, y'all. Yeah. They are a thing. <laughs> That's right. Back to the recap. That's right. McGee is heading upstairs and Molesley asks for a word. She hopes it's not gossip. <laughs> is that a thing yeah. that your servants have been doing of late? I mean, kind of, I guess. Yeah. Why don't you, you know, she wants to nip it in the bud. Anyway, he believes it is not. Uh, so down in the kitchen, Daisy is angrily mashing some potatoes, and Mrs. Patmore says she couldn't be harder on them if she wanted them to confess spying, <laughs> because she's also out of aphorisms. <laughs> Daisy's let down because they have got Mr. Mason's hopes up, and Mrs. Patmore and we <laughs> point out that it's Daisy that has put his hopes up and constructed this entire thing right. all on her own. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore says that maybe it wasn't possible for them to offer him pig farm. Daisy gets angry again, and Mrs. Patmore says, All right, Madame Defarge, calm down and finish that mash. Mrs. Patmore has been having some very, like, well-read references lately. Yeah. I mean, she's never, you know, come out as a novel reader, but maybe she is. Maybe so. Thought she just liked Rudolph Valentina. (laughs) In the drawing room, Thomas announces the Dowager Lady Shackleton and Henry Talbot. Talbot. Yeah, Talbot. Uh, Mary says, golly. Sybil Crawley Memorial, golly. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't realize he was the nephew. And Matthew Good is like, oh, I'm the nephew. And Mary's like... Yeah, that was how you were pitched to us. <laughs> right. Like, it's not our fault that your fucking aunt doesn't care about you. Yeah. So Mary asks if Matthew Good knew that he was coming to Downton. And he says that he must have some secrets. Uh, I mean, like, she hasn't seen this guy, right? <laughs> right. Like, since Christmas. Was that actually Yes? It always like- it always messes me up on the Christmas specials because it's like, you know It was Christmas because that was Branson leaving. Yeah. It'll always be either like they're off doing a thing and then it's Christmas or it's Christmas and then they do some other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is our deep textual analysis of the Christmas specials. <laughs> okay. 
McGee is chatting with Rosamond, Isabel, and Edith, and they agree that they must invite Mr. Harding, the treasurer of the college and his wife, up to Downton. Isabel's glad that women have careers now, and Edith says that this could actually change lives. I'm like, you know, everybody downstairs <laughs> was beating this drum. And, oh, remember the homely liberal that you hated so much? Uh-huh. Which, granted, right. we also hated her. <laughs> but this is what she thought was good. Yeah. Branson asks Matthew Good why he's in Yorkshire, and he says that he's looking at a car that he might be racing. Mary asks if he really is a car man, and Matthew Good says that he is, like a transformer. Um, <laughs> Thomas says that you don't often hear that in Yorkshire, and he envies Matthew Good because he will race at Brooklands. Great. Yeah. The Dowager asks the Dowager Shackleton <laughs> about Matthew Good. He's apparently 40th in line for an earldom. So, you know, yeah. don't get your hopes up, ladies. <laughs> Although this is Downton. The Dowager Countess says They could nothing- all get on the Hindenburg. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Bite your tongue. <laughs> That'll be the sequel. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, Kelly. No, I just, it. I can't. Because <laughs> now I'm thinking, anyway, okay. Yeah. The Dowager says nothing is impossible, but what are his prospects otherwise? And Lady Shackleton says, not overwhelming. Lord Grantham chastises them for handicapping him in Ray Mary's vagina. (laughs) But the Dowager says that Mary needs more than a handsome smile and a hand on the gear stick, which is like, yeah. Yeah. She does. She says so. And yeah, I mean, I'm still mad about Charles Blake. Yeah, me too. He, I thought they were such a great match. I still do. I mean, he just, he, and I think it was strictly because Julian Ovenden, you know, his contract was up or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they just, they set it up really beautifully yeah. in a way that I really enjoyed. I anyway. agree. I agree. Lord Grantham is surprised that the Dowager knows what a gear stick is. And she says she knows more than he thinks. And I'm like, why is there so much sexual innuendo? I know. In this season of this show. I know. Between characters who have no <laughs> sexual relationship, whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> Lady Shackleton thanks Lord Grantham for letting her push into a family party. <laughs> and Lord Grantham asks her not to let the Dowager pull her into the fight, which again, maybe I'm, I'm team Lady Shackleton here. I'm like, maybe Agreed. she just wanted a dope free dinner. Yeah. You know, she just wanted to chillax. Yeah. Um, the Dowager takes offense, and Lord Grantham says, no one has sharper eyes than a loving son. And I'm like, what? who are you? <laughs> what have you done with the real Lord Grantham? <laughs> the Dowager thinks he must have read that somewhere versus coming up with it, which in terms of cutting remarks yeah. is like spork. <laughs> <laughs> right. Baxter paces downstairs, waiting for any kind of interesting plot line to develop for her. Spoiler alert. It's not happening in this episode. <laughs> no. It's just Molesley. <laughs> she asks if he doesn't trust his own powers of persuasion, meaning that she knows that he talked to McGee. He says that he thinks Baxter will regret being silent. And then Thomas asks Molesley to, you know, keep working because there's a party going on. Uh, and Anna says that Molesley looks preoccupied and then seems to experience some sort of internal distress. Uh, but when Molesley asks after her, she says, oh, just carry on, as they say in the Navy. You know? What the Navy doesn't have to cope with at this point in history? Being pregnant. Yeah. Like, I don't know how it works now. Right. But I would assume in the Navy, if you're pregnant, you're like, hey, I'm pregnant. Uh, if I experience some internal distress, <laughs> can I go sit down? <laughs> right. Like, maybe if you're in the middle of a battle, no. Sure. 
But I don't see why you would be in active combat. I, anyway. Yeah. Cousins, are you in the Navy? <laughs> are you pregnant? We would love to know what the hell is going on. <laughs> Realize that's a departure from the normal script, but I would like to counterpoint that with cold brew coffee. <laughs> at dinner, Isabel pushes the new treatments that will be available at the hospital, and the Dowager disagrees that that is in any way good and asks Lady Shackleton for backup. Lady Shackleton says that there's a good deal to be said on both sides and asks how she can claim to be an expert when she doesn't know all the facts, or as they say in Britain, facts. <laughs> the Dowager says that's never stopped Lady Shackleton, which... I take exception to. Yeah. Lady Shackleton has been one of the most delightful and like ethical tertiary characters we've seen on this show. Here, here. She was like, I'm going to bring my nephew. Everybody was like, cool. She's like, here is my nephew. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? She's like, I don't really care about this hospital She thing. was like, oh, I'm looking for someone who can be a good butler. Oh, Molesley, not a good butler. Yeah. Not interested. <laughs> um, you know, she's got a good head on her shoulders. Agreed. Hates her daughter-in-law. I assume her daughter-in-law is bad news. Yeah. You know? Seems reasonable. At any rate, Branson decides to Edith that the Dowager's on cracking form, which is incorrect, as yeah. you will find out when we <laughs> award the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths later in this episode. Edith says that if the Dowager were 20 years younger, she'd just be a tyrant. And I'm like, isn't she already a tyrant? She is. Granted, not as effective as she once was, mm-hmm. but... She asks Branson if he's considered what he's going to do. He says, cars sound interesting. So hold on. (laughs) Hold on, everybody. Yeah. Are we pushing toward a character resolution with Branson that basically has him being a chauffeur again, (laughs) like for all intents and purposes? It's just like Julian Fellows has like this meter that's like, oh, character development. Oh, strike that. (laughs) Oh, dear, a change. No, we must shoehorn you back into the past. Yeah. What about being a journalist? Remember when you were doing that? What about doing anything Uh, that isn't? Or, you know, if you're going to work with cars, do it in a way that isn't stupid. (laughs) But like this is just like he knows he already knows about cars. Yeah. What do you mean you, they sound? You already know how to. That was do your things. previous job. You could say I'm gonna go. You know. Oh, I hear you need a new chauffeur. <laughs> right. I, I'm it's sorry. A changing world. <laughs> I just you know miss driving people around. <laughs> I've My been one thinking about love. this rideshare idea. <laughs> Mary tells Matthew Good that she's not going to explain what's going on since every village argument is the same. He says he's not a village boy. His father was in Parliament. She asks if he makes a living out of cars. He supposes so and asks if that seems odd. And she says yes, but people do odd things. She met a man who spends his time importing guinea pigs. People have had a lot of dumb conversations on this show. (laughs) But I think this might be the number one dumb conversation. Like, I don't care about this person that we're never going to meet. Like, is there going to be a guinea pig in the episode? Yeah. No? Then let's move on. Agreed. They're my guinea pigs. (laughs) Rosamond tells the Dowager to leave Lady Shackleton alone. uh, Since Lady Shackleton... No. Since the Dowager can land her own punches. I don't know. Somebody can land a punch. (laughs) McGee says the question is which system will deliver modern treatment? And the Dowager and Isabel bicker. Edith supposes Isabel is entitled to put up an argument. And the Dowager says she's just not entitled to win it. Yeah. Again, this is not the Dowager. No. 
The Dowager is only that imperious when she's absolutely certain of her own moral rectitude. Right. And this just sounds like petty carping. It does. Chatter. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't have any It doesn't authority. carry the courage of her own convictions, yeah. which we've seen mm-hmm. on display in many, many instances. Yeah. And it just feels, you know, and we've said this before, it just feels like going through the paces. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Anyway, as people leave, Shackleton tells Lord Grantham that she's disappointed the Dowager. He says that he's just glad she didn't make things worse. Matthew Good asks Mary if she ever makes it up to London and asks if she would think it common if he gave her his card. She says yes, but she'll take it anyway. I mean, how else are you supposed to get his phone number? Right. So he says to call him and they'll have lunch or something. So, sex? I guess so. Cool. (laughs) Netflix and chill. (laughs) Mary says that she couldn't be less interested in cars and he says that it's because she hasn't been taught about them properly. So, sex in the back of a car? Apparently, yes. Okay, great. Yeah. As long as we're all on the same page. <laughs> Edith says she wants to avoid the dowager getting kicked off the board. McGee says they might all get kicked off with this fuss. Rosamond says supporting her wrong thinking won't help, which is like the most sensible thing anybody has said. Yeah. Branson suggests that they all try to remain friends, and Edith says Tom the Peacemaker is back. Yeah. Great. The least interesting <laughs> version of him. <laughs> human doorstop Tom Branson <laughs> uh, Matthew Good summons Lady Shackleton to leave they head out and then Lord Grantham grabs his stomach McGee asks about it and he just says that he can't drink port anymore uh, okay yeah no more port yeah out back Thomas tells Baxter that he feels a lack for reason why he's here what he's doing she says they're all just doing their best and Thomas says yes but Baxter makes friends and people like her I don't think that <laughs> Molesley right. likes her. Yeah. And Molesley is just like grasping at straws yeah. when it comes to other people. Here, here. Who, what's the evidence that anybody likes her other than Molesley? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, you know, Molesley more than likes her. Yeah. Uh, Baxter says not to be silly. And it's like, just, just I just want to shake her. <laughs> Never shake a Baxter. <laughs> Never shake a ghost. He says he's envious, but not for the Molesley part of it. Baxter envies Thomas for not caring what people say while she trembles at the idea of public ridicule. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess she never does anything yeah. to be ridiculed for. Yeah. Thomas says that she's stronger than she thinks and she's wrong. He does mind what people say. And again, there's totally a way to write their whole relationship mm-hmm. if Baxter has a personality. Yeah. And... He can care what people think, but I don't see any motivation then for him continuing to be a dick to everybody. Like, he just, they just need to tweak his behavior slightly. Yeah, just to be, have it be more seen, I don't know. Because it's clearly, you know, the idea is that he's a dick to everybody out of, like, you know, his injured, you know, self-esteem or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it just doesn't quite happen. Yeah. I don't know. In the Carson cave, Baxter tells Officer Bummer that he can't force her to testify, but Officer Bummer says they can make her attend the trial. Mosley says that Officer Bummer isn't the enemy, Coyle is, and this is her chance. Baxter says, for what, revenge? Officer Bummer says, no, like I said last time, to stop other girls from being tricked into a life of crime. He says that two of the women that Coyle has used are prostitutes, and at least one is dead. Baxter asks what happens if she says yes. He says they'll send a list of witnesses to the prosecution, and if he doesn't change his plea, he'll go to trial. So Baxter agrees, and Officer Bummer heads out. 
Mosley asks what changed her mind, and she says the thought of the girls he's ruined like he ruined her. Mosley points out that he didn't ruin her, and she says, well, maybe, but he did change her. I feel like maybe is just Baxter's entire raison de It's just like, well, maybe. Yeah. Just, you know, maybe. Yeah. And again, it's not like he made a different argument this time. This no. This is the same argument he presented in his first visit. But, She's you know. She's just like living in like a slower time stream than everybody else somehow. Yeah. Uh, a car arrives at Downton and it's some guy and Gwen! 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 What? Oh, thank God! Yes. McGee tells Thomas that they'll be in the drawing room, and Thomas answers the door. Gwen says, hello. Thomas simply stays professional and Mm -hmm. lets them in. Anna runs up to Gwen and asks why she didn't telephone. Gwen says that she didn't know until that morning, and she just knew they were visiting a Painswick, and she had forgotten Rosamond's last name. Right. She heads off with her husband, and Thomas says to Anna that Gwen doesn't have time to greet her old friends, despite the fact that she did just greet an old friend. <laughs> right. And Anna correctly asks when Gwen was ever a friend of hers. His. Yeah. It's. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it's, I mean, Thomas basically in that first season was only bumming around with O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. God, I miss O'Brien. Because at least she was consistent. She was. You know? Yeah. And she was very loyal to McGee in a way that made McGee a lot of fun. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah. They they had a rapport that made up for everything somehow. Yeah. Not everything, everything. No, no. But. Yeah. Oh, my God. Remember how she made her have a miscarriage? Uh-huh, I do. Oh, my God. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> so much happened. Downton. It goes there. It did go there. It did. Yeah, this is really like the Holly J year. <laughs> if you want to keep going with that Degrassi yeah. metaphor. Which I always do. The family meet the Hardwicks in the drawing room, and Rosamond asks why Mr. Harding got involved in Hillcroft. He says it was Gwen's idea. Isabel asks what drew her to it, but Mary interrupts to ask if they've met. And Gwen says, not exactly. Edith asked her to go on about Hillcroft, and Thomas hears this as he's leaving. Gwen says that she never had higher education, and Mary says, oh, yes, all that we were taught was French prejudice and dance steps, and everybody laughs. That's a pretty tasteless joke. Yeah. Like, I don't know. You know how I feel about higher education. Yes. And rich people acting like they didn't have a fucking leg up. (laughs) In the kitchen, Andy, who is there in the room, asks who Gwen is, and Mrs. Patmore and Daisy explain. Bates asks what Lord Grantham thinks, and Daisy says that, uh, you know, they won't recognize Gwen. They never look servants in the face, which is true. <laughs> yeah, no. Particularly They're at up the They're right now not recognizing At her. the time that Gwen was in service, mm-hmm. that was much more rigid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Patmore wonders if Karl Marx might finish <laughs> the liver pate. And once again, Mrs. Patmore and Daisy are working like crazy <laughs> while three other servants just hang out with nothing to do yeah. despite the fact that they're entertaining. Yeah. Anna says that Lord Gar- Grantham isn't uncomfortable about this sort of thing. Uh, and Mosley says that Lord Grantham's daughter ran off with the chauffeur in the interim. And everyone seems to think that was an impolite thing to say, even though it's true. Yeah. That's just a plain statement of fact. Yeah. In the drawing room, Harding says that Gwen was a supporter when Hillcroft first opened in 1920 and suggested him as treasurer. Edith asks how he manages from Yorkshire, and he says that he goes there twice a month, and the telephones really changed everything. Isabel wants to hear Gwen's story. She says the telephone changed everything for her, too. She was a secretary for a telephone company. And Harding adds that then she moved into local government, which is where they met. 
Gwen says that if she'd had more education, she might have gone further. And Isabel chimes in that many women from all backgrounds feel that, her included. See, that's how rich people should talk about education. Mm-hmm. Thomas comes in and grumpily announces lunch. Uh, so most people head in, but Branson pulls Gwen aside, and she says that she didn't mean to pretend. Branson asks if Harding knows that she worked there, and she says that he does know that she was a housemaid, but he doesn't know where. Uh, Branson says that, you know, he'd criticize her, but he's one to talk. Is he? Uh, well, he, you know, married Sybil. I fucking hate him now. <laughs> I used to love him so much. I know, much. he was one of our favorites. It's like a Fiona Apple song. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and Mary seems to have noticed something suspicious. In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore asks if Gwen will come down to say hello, and Thomas snarks that she's too important to speak to the likes of them, even though (laughs) he literally witnessed her having an extremely animated conversation with Anna. Yep. Thomas, uh, anyway. Yeah. So at lunch... Mm -hmm. Luncheon. <laughs> Rosamond uh, talks about helping women achieve their potential, and Isabel and Gwen both agree. Mary says it's lucky Carson isn't there, which again seems... Carson doesn't have anything to say about what the lunch guests are talking about. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's the point of servants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are not supposed to have opinions. Carson knows this. And Harding asks who that is. Lord Grantham explains about Carson being, you know, out on his honeymoon. Right. And then Thomas says to Gwen, you recall Mr. Carson, madam, surely there is an awkward pause. And McGee asks Thomas what he means. And he starts to explain. But Gwen cuts him off. Oh, my God. And she gives him the best look. Mm -hmm. She gives him the look we all want to give him. Yeah. Yeah. And she says that she can tell it. And she says that she used to be a housemate at Downton for a couple of years. And Mary says that she knew she recognized her. And Lord Grantham asks why she didn't say. And Gwen says she was going to. And then Mary says, well, you had every opportunity. And I'm like, no, man. Yeah. Like, you've never gone somewhere and had to explain why you didn't used to be, you know, a lady. Mm-hmm. Like, shut up, dude. I agree. Uh, but yeah, Gwen is awesome. Yeah. We miss you, Gwen. Yeah. We wish the rest of the season was just you. <laughs> yeah. In the kitchen, Patmore asks how things are going, and Andy says that Thomas just landed Gwen in it. Molesley explains further. Bates and Anna say they knew he'd do something like that. Thomas comes in. Bates says that they've heard he spoiled Gwen's luncheon. I don't think that he particularly spoiled it. Yeah. yeah I but, mean, it was rude. Yeah. But, like, you know, she yeah, can handle herself. She can, but Bates doesn't realize that. Thomas says he couldn't have known that she was planning to lie her way through it. Uh, Bates says that he's jealous. And Thomas is like, oh, why would I be jealous? Because I dedicated my life to service and I'm about to get fired while she scarpered first chance she got and is now lunching upstairs. Um, yeah, but jealousy's not cool, dude. Anna says that Lord Grantham won't like it. Thomas says that they'll see. He no, I think he definitely won't like it. Yeah. I mean, even... The class mobility issues aside, that isn't how you behave toward guests. Yeah. If you're acting as butler. Mm-hmm. Carson would never do that. No. If no. Look, what Carson would have done, if it were appropriate, you know, if he could have pulled Lord Grantham yeah. aside at some point, and Carson would have been like, oh, hey, by the way, to make you look good, she used to be our housemate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, it's yeah. kind of shady that you guys don't like remember her. <laughs> yeah. So like, figure something out. Right, right. Carson's a problem solver, not a problem maker. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Thomas says that he knows Mary didn't like being wrong-footed, and he is still the butler, so get back to work. Oh, yeah, because he and Mary are BFFs. Yeah. 
Isabel thinks Gwen's 20th century is marvelous. Gwen's 20th century sounds like the name of a movie on TCM. <laughs> yeah. McGee agrees and welcomes her back, and she just feels stupid for not recognizing her. And Gwen says that they never spoke. Edith says she worked there for two years, and they never spoke to her. They're the ones in the wrong. And Gwen said she didn't mean it like that. It was a good job. And Rosamond says not good enough to stay. And Gwen just says that she didn't want to be in service her whole life. Mm-hmm. Isabel says she found an opportunity and took it. And Gwen says Lady Sybil actually found it for her. Gwen explains all that she did for her. Oh, man, guys. Yeah. I forgot this was happening Mm -hmm. because when I read this recap, (laughs) I was just bawling. (laughs) And she talks about the time they got stuck in the mud with the horse cart. Mm -hmm. And McGee, you know, remembers that, you know, Sybil was gone and that, you know, she never said a word about what she was actually doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham remembers when Sybil kept him out of the library while Gwen was interviewing with the telephone man. And Branson asked if they kept in contact. Oh, guys. Yeah. Anyway, Gwen says that they would send each other Christmas cards and such. And she heard the news about Sybil dying. Yeah. And she says that she'll never forget Sybil and that her kindness changed her life. And people are talking about how great Sybil was. Yeah. <sighs> And Mary thanks Thomas for reminding them of Gwen's time there. <laughs> so, you know, zing. Sorry, guys. Yeah. I'm just so emotional about Sybil. I know. Well, we, you know. She was the last person we cared about. They don't talk about any of the cool stuff she did. Yeah. Hardly at all. Yeah. Yeah. They don't talk about her pants. I know. <laughs> Nobody ever talks about her pants. <laughs> No, and I mean, you know, you talk about making a difference in women's lives. Mm-hmm. Like, Sybil made a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. So you can see why I thought I was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Down in the servants' hall, Patmore warns everybody that they're coming, and Gwen comes in. Patmore says that Hughes will be sad to have missed her, and Anna asks after Gwen's children, and Gwen will want to hear all about the people at Downton, too. And then in the hall, Crazy Eyes Daisy <laughs> says that Branson will... <laughs> Old Daisy Eyes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> she says that Branson will know what they're planning for Pig Farm, and she hears they're having second thoughts. She hasn't heard a damn thing. Yeah. She is literally hallucinating the entire <laughs> plot by herself. It's like somebody like slipped her some mescaline. <laughs> Brandon says it's not that simple, but Daisy says it's as simple as this. Mr. Mason's son, her husband, she suddenly conveniently remembers, uh, left the house to die for his country, so shouldn't they help him if they can? He says that he will have a word. I just want to point out yes. that for years we have been like, Daisy, you own a farm, and mm-hmm. she resolutely refused to acknowledge this. Mm-hmm. As soon as the farm is gone, it's all she can talk about. Yeah. Thus proving you don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> Possibly literally in this case. They paved pig farm and put up a parking <laughs> lot. Ooh, bop, bop, bop. I guess more like, ooh, oink, oink, oink. <laughs> no, it's They're just- my parking spaces. <laughs> no and i you know again all of this stuff just needs a writing staff yeah to fix it yeah and point out the holes yeah there's things that you know there's plenty of redeemable stuff in here you know not all of it but a a fair amount the gwen stuff is great yeah the gwen stuff is great 
Lord Grantham confronts Thomas over trying to catch Gwen out, and he says he doesn't care for a lack of generosity. And Baxter tells Thomas he's his own worst enemy. He says, if so, he's got competition. From whom? Uh, I don't know. It's, yeah, okay. It wasn't a rhetorical question, but I guess it is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not really. Because it's like, really, maybe Mr. Carson. I mean, I guess, you know, just the only, I mean, to the extent that people have been keeping Andy from being friends with him, but that's, you know, that's it. I don't know. In Mary's room, Mary says that Gwen put her in her place, and when she was talking about Sybil, she realized how much better Sybil was than her Mary. And Correct. <laughs> yeah, clearly, and she says she felt chastened. Anna says not to be too hard on herself. Disagree. Be harder <laughs> on yourself, Mary. It seems like a bother. Mary goes on to ask why... Mary goes on to ask sort of rhetorically why it was that she was so pettish. Gwen had made something of her life, uh, but then Anna feels a pain, and she says she's having another miscarriage. So Mary's like, okay, we'll go to London to see the doctor. They can drive to York, and there may be a late train there. Anna asks what to tell Bates, and Mary says to say that it's her that needs to see the doctor. Anna asks what if she loses the baby on the way, and Mary's like, well, then in that case, we'll be no worse off. But when they get there, whatever the time, they will make the doctor see her. And I'm also like, wasn't the whole plan, Anna, for you to, like, notify the doctor as, as soon, soon as, as you got pregnant? Yeah. Yeah. It was. So why did you not do that? Um, you know, years of internalized self-hatred for murder prison. I guess so. Branson sees Mary in the hallway with a suitcase and asks what's up. Mary says not to tell anyone and explains. Branson says he will drive them to York. And in Mary and Lord, I'm sorry, in... McGee and Lord Grantham's room. Mary asks Rosamond if she can stay at her house. Rosamond says yes, and she'll telephone Mead. Mary explains that Anna is coming and that it's something medical. <laughs> so she'll be back in a day or two. Lord Grantham says that Carson and he, Mrs. Carson, <laughs> they'll be back on Friday. So it'd be nice if Mary was too, even though she just said it was something medical. Right. Anyway, Mary says she'll try. Outside, Bates doesn't understand the urgency, and Anna asks if he wants Mary's medical history. He says it seems sudden, and Anna's like, yeah, that's life, buddy. Like, what do you want yeah. from me? He asks if she's hiding something. She says that he has lived with suspicion too long, and anyway, she mustn't keep Branson waiting. But you are hiding something, Anna. Why? Look, they don't have a good relationship. They don't. It started out good, and then it got horrible. Yeah. Mary comes out and tells Bates that they'll be back before he knows it, and Bates stares at the departing car. In the servants' hall, Mosley asks what the emergency is, and Baxter says that it's none of their business. Once again, real glad <laughs> that we had that conversation. Bates says for once he agrees with her. Why is he mad at her again? He no no was it something like she knew about like that ticket or something maybe or maybe it's just that generally she like is occasionally decent to Thomas and that's enough for Bates no I I, it was definitely something was specifically okay. about the Bateses okay and murder prison yeah no you're right that sounds familiar but now. it was so vague like that whatever the connection like she like they made her like say something about being like a character witness or something for yeah them. it was something. Or, it like, was, she knew about Anna being in London or something? Yeah, like, she revealed a fact that they wished that she had hidden. Yeah. But it doesn't Which matter. Which doesn't make sense under the law. Right. Anyway. Yeah. At any rate. <laughs> Daisy is brooding, uh, I guess, whatever. And Bates asks, what's what? And Daisy says, she's had enough. McGee has cheated Mr. Mason of his farm. And she's going to have it out with her. Uh, that's not true. Right. Uh, 
Mr. Mason was the victim of a changing economic system. Yeah. And you have just been making things up. Yeah. Mosley says that if she does this, she'll lose her job. And then what? And Daisy says that Gwen has thrown off the yoke of service to make a good life. Yes. But Gwen did correspondence, secretarial classes. Yeah. And had a plan. Yeah. Uh, and also the help of a member of the aristocracy. <laughs> yes. Which you are not going to have. Clearly not. Um, Baxter randomly asks what Andy and Mosley are doing downstairs because that is valuable. Sure. Andy says they wanted to be alone. Mosley says that she can't barge in while they're discussing something private. And Daisy says she'll wait for her. For McGee. For McGee. And Mosley again asks her not to like talk to her at all. Right. In the drawing room, Edith thinks that Mary is just being dramatic, and Lord Grantham adds that she didn't look ill. McGee wants to take advantage of Mary's absence to settle Pig Farm. She wants to offer it to Mason. Lord Grantham says that Mason is old, but McGee says that he'll have Daisy to help. Oh yeah, she's super competent. Yeah, and has plenty of free time. Edith asks if they can afford it. Lord Grantham says they would make more money farming it themselves. Edith thinks they should wait for Branson to get back. McGee says that she'll ask him what Sybil would do. Lord Grantham asks if that's fair. Everybody is gathered downstairs trying to talk Daisy down. And Patmore says she could get a job anywhere. But if she does this, she'll have to manage without a reference. And Thomas agrees and reminds her about the auction. And, you know, what happened when she tried to confront <laughs> that guy. Yeah. But Daisy says she has to do it for narrative economy reasons. Right. Baxter says she's coming with Daisy. Daisy says to please herself. Andy points out, for once, being useful. Yeah. As he is in the same room. <laughs> that it won't help Mr. Mason. Right. And Daisy doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. Um, she's just... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's like, for all that, where was this self-regard when everybody forced you to marry William? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like... I know. <gasps> Branson enters the drawing room and says that Mary and Anna made the last train. McGee wishes she knew what it was about. Branson says it's nothing to concern her. Lord Grantham says that he missed a good dinner. Branson says that he bought sandwiches at the station and ate them in the car, to which Lord Grantham says, you're a braver man than I am, Gunga Din. I learned that the correct pronunciation of that is actually Gunga Dean. Well, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, if you uh, read the poem, which I haven't and don't have any intentions <laughs> of, uh, but all of the rhyme scheme mm. uh, is Dean mm. versus Din. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, they're just train station sandwiches, dude. <sighs> McGee says that they've been settling some business, and Edith explains. Lord Grantham says that giving it to Mason isn't a business-like decision, and McGee has been using emotional blackmail. Lord Grantham asks if Branson's convinced. He says that he was reminded recently of William's death, and he feels that Mr. Mason is in their charge. After all, they seem to have let him believe that he was one of their tenants his whole life. So yeah, so, you there's know. There's a certain obligation there. <laughs> McGee agrees, and Lord Grantham asks if they should wait for Mary. Branson says no, he'll handle her, uh, because she's just a girl after all. She can Ugh. pretend that she's the estate agent all day she, she wants. <sighs> Edith says that they don't have to do everything Mary says when they're all agreed. Um, if she's the estate agent, actually, I mean, I guess she doesn't have complete autonomy. Right. Clearly, they made bad decisions, like in the past. Yeah. That the estate agent presumably would have objected to, but mm -hmm. it's like, well, yeah. If she's the estate agent, the farm isn't theirs to give. Right. Not only that, she's the legal guardian to George, who is the only financially solvent member of the family. <laughs> like it's all George's money. It's George's world. They're just living. <laughs> anyway, 
McGee says maybe it's underhand, but it's too important to her to let scruples get in the way, and she heads out. You know, scruples are what separate us from the animals. <laughs> what separates us from the pigs. <laughs> in the hallway, Daisy says she has to speak to McGee. McGee wonders what Baxter's doing there, and Baxter says that she was worried about uh, Daisy and is trying in her feeble way to, like... <laughs> Baxter to me is like if the um the mops in the sorcerer's apprentice with the brooms <laughs> yeah, yeah. that get brought to life if they had faces and could talk. <laughs> they'd be like, you know, I was perfectly happy not being sent <laughs> Good life being a broom. McGee is sorry to hear it, but doesn't understand what Daisy's doing upstairs, and this is the second time in as many weeks. Yeah. Lord Grantham comes out and says, Daisy, there you are. That was quick. So luckily, Lord Grantham's idiocy saves everybody from a very horrible situation. Yeah. And Lord Grantham asks if uh, Daisy will tell Mr. Mason or if they should about the farm. Daisy, oh, sorry. He doesn't specify. Daisy asks what? And Lord Grantham explains. Baxter says that's wonderful news. And Daisy's stunned. Baxter says she'll just take Daisy downstairs (laughs) and see McGee in a little while. (laughs) Lord Grantham says that was peculiar. McGee says, I feel like I just dodged something, though I don't know what. I'm like, what is your life like? (laughs) Like, Jesus. Yeah. Go knit a cat pillow. Embroider, I'm sorry. Yeah. Lord Grantham has another pain uh, at the bottom of the stair and says, don't start. So, I'm like, was he drinking port again after he said he wasn't going to drink port? I mean, look, I've said a lot of things. Now, I did finally stop drinking tequila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it took a while. Yeah. Mary stands up as the doctor walks in, uh, and this is all at Rosamond's place, I believe. He says that Anna is resting and has not lost the baby. He put in the stitch and, quote, as they say in the medical novels, he's cautiously optimistic. Is that, that's just a thing that people generally say, it's right? true. Also, medical novels? Oh, yeah. You know, that- all the many novels about medical things. <laughs> that reminds me of when I briefly acted as a consultant to a woman who was speaking before a convention of nurses, and she wanted to tie this, like, series about, like, a young nurse named Cherry something. <laughs> um, I keep wanting to say Cherry Jones, but I know that's no, wrong. that's not. Uh, but it was, like, you know, about this young nurse in, like, the 50s, and, like, she read those growing up, and, man, that was one unfunny lady. <laughs> like, I couldn't do any... Because I was like, oh, maybe, like, make fun of... Like, she... I was like, okay, well, like, what are what are things that people don't like doing in nursing? She's like, oh, like, mental health. And I was like, okay, well, you could, like, m- you know, make light of that. She was like, no, no, people might get upset. And then I'm like, maybe... Like, yeah. I'll take your money. <laughs> but this seems like a bad scene. Yeah. Mary asks what she should do, and the doctor asks if they can stay a day or two. She says until Friday they can stay. He says that's fine, and make sure that Anna rests. Mary's grateful for him coming out at dawn, and he says, don't worry, it'll be reflected in his bill. And then he puts on his sunglasses, and it goes, <laughs> just yeah. like CSI. <laughs> I like this doctor. He only had these couple too. little Honestly, scenes. Honestly, but... I would rather watch a show that was just about Gwen and this doctor. <laughs> All right. Gwen and the Gyne. They have a sexual tension that they could never act on. Oh, come on. Didn't you hear my funny title? Oh, no. Gwen and the Gyne. <laughs> in the kitchen. In the kitchen. In the kitchen. There's no boot room in this episode. We've got to make do. Daisy feels dazed. <laughs> Yesterday, she hated McGee, and now she saved their lives. Um, Pat Moore says it never does good to hate anyone. Pat Moore hated Lord Grantham when he wouldn't, like, stick up for her dumb coward of a nephew. Well, that's true. I'm sorry. We are supportive <laughs> of her nephew because he had post-traumatic stress. Yeah. 
Andy, who's also there in the room, asks <laughs> if it's really true, and he says he envies Mr. Mason. And Mrs. Patmore says, high praise from a city boy. And Andy says, nope, he's a country boy. This is where he wants to end up. Start singing John Denver. <laughs> he and Daisy make eye contact. I don't know... Like, are they going to make them a thing now? It kind of seems I that's don't... the way it's going. I mean, that would explain the otherwise completely inexplicable love of pig farming. Does Julian Fellows know that sometimes people don't date their coworkers <laughs> or like anyone? Sometimes it's... they just don't do that. Yeah. Sometimes they go off to secretarial school in London and that's how their story ends. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, she got married later, but like in a perfectly normal, you know, way. Yeah. Didn't have a mysterious sister preventing her from enjoying (laughs) retirement. That's right. In the front hall, Lord Grantham asks when Carson's arriving and Thomas says six o'clock and they'll be having a bit of a do in the servants hall to say hello. Lord Grantham says the family will come down and to tell Patmore that they can have a cold dinner if that would be easier. Lord Grantham says, back to normal at last. Thomas says that he's enjoyed being butler, and Lord Grantham hopes that he has learned something from it. He says that Carson is kind, and that's why people are loyal to him. Thomas says he'll keep that in mind, and Lord Grantham's like, good, that'll be helpful when, uh, uh, when the hour strikes. So, when you get fired. Yeah, uh, which Thomas is, you know, no idiot. Rich people music plays as Mary enters the Royal Automobile Club. Is it her, like, theme that plays yeah, when she's at the, the fashion show? Exactly, yeah. And she's welcomed by Matthew Good. Mary doesn't know it, but she likes to be surprised. <laughs> we would like to state once again, unequivocally, <laughs> no surprises. Surprises yeah. are bad. Here, here. Surprises ruin relationships. Mm-hmm. She apologizes for looking shabby. She stole the dress from Rosamond. And her hair actually is what looks heinous. Yeah. Um, Matthew says that she's the opposite of shabby. Yeah, because, you know, he wants to get laid. So then we get jazz. <laughs> Low-key, respectable jazz. Yeah. Uh, they sit at a table and Mary says she's never been there. Asks when it was built. Matthew Good says, 1911, the Temple of Car Lovers, which is just exactly the kind of pseudo-Grecian bullshit <laughs> that the English upper classes always love to invoke. You're right. Mary says his love isn't fickle, but for her, a car is just a way to get from A to B. He asks what her enthusiasm is. Horses? She says no. She doesn't see horses in her dreams. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a weird thing to say. Agreed. She likes her work. Uh, that's not what he asked. He asked what your passion is. <laughs> yeah. He asks, he's like surprised that she works and she says it's rather shocking, but she functions as the estate agent and she's determined that Downton won't go under. Matthew Good says he's impressed and asks about her son, and she says she assumes he'll take over eventually, and when he does, she wants to make sure he's master of a modern growing concern, uh, which is a bit like the record industry, <laughs> yeah. saying that they want to continue being a vital part of the American economy. She adds that he's the heir to Lord Grantham's title for reasons too complicated to bore you with, which actually is not that complicated. No, that's true. Like, everyone in Britain knows about male primogeniture. Yeah. Uh, so it's neat and tidy though. And Mc- Matthew Good says tidy-ish and asks if she's at a loose end. Mary hopes that means he's going to make a pass. Matthew Good says probably, but will you accept? Mary says no, but she'll enjoy the process immensely. So does she mean, is he going to ask her to do it? I'm not clear. Just that he's going to initiate some sort of steps. Right. I just don't know what making a pass means in this time period. Right. And now that she's had her, you know, 
like fling like is she just throwing caution to the winds at this yeah, point like, is or she just packing it into mothballs or <laughs> I, I guess time will tell I, yeah i guess so their supper is not over yet <laughs> or lunch or whatever they're doing right at pig farm mason feels like he's standing at the gates of paradise <sighs> i feel like we need to like get him a coffee table book <laughs> daisy doesn't think it's any nicer than his old farm but mason says this one's safe they're not going to sell in his lifetime uh do you know that for a fact they kicked out Pigman. <laughs> they did. Anything could happen. Yeah. Daisy agrees that Mary wouldn't allow them to sell up. Mason that doesn't. Oh, the whole place. Yeah, okay. the whole place. I thought she meant yeah. like just the farm. Right, right. I was right. like, uh, yeah. you're giving Mary an awful lot of credit that she doesn't deserve. <laughs> Mason says that it's all down to Daisy. Daisy used her credit to make it happen. Daisy doesn't think she's got much credit there, but he says that she's wrong and Pig Farm is the proof of it. Uh, well, I guess the delusion is uh, multi-generational yeah. then. Yeah, they, yeah. In the servants' hall, uh, apparently the Carsons will be there soon as they try to finish the decorating, and Bates says they're not striving for a setting by Dia... Fuck. <laughs> Diagilev. Diagilev? Diagilev? Okay. I think so. We're going with that. Yeah. Uh, the point is, they made an effort. Bates asks if Anna's finished, and she says yes. He asks if the trip went well, and Anna says that she thinks so. He wants to know why. And Bates says he believes he knows what Anna is hiding, and he hopes that he's wrong. She says he's not entirely wrong, but she's not hiding something sad. It's very, very happy. He asks if she's sure. She says yes. And then the Carsons arrive to applause, interrupting their birth announcement in much the way that their wedding was interrupted, continuing the cycle of abuse. <laughs> Carson says he feels as though he's been away for months, and Mrs. Hughes says, very flattering, I don't think, which is great. Yeah. And they accept some punch. And, like, they come in like the biggest community theater production. <laughs> like, hats off to Phyllis Logan. Mm -hmm. I hope that you have a really great project lined up after this. <laughs> that brings us to our next recurring segment, Fashion Backwards, with our very own ballet boss, Kelly. Yes. Okay. So I looked up who this Diagolov is. Mm -hmm. uh, as you may have guessed, he's a Russian. <laughs> Much like Prince Karagin. Yeah. Okay, so he was this guy. He was the son uh, of Pavel Pavlovich. So his full name was Sergei Pavlovich Diagolov. All right. Uh, known as Serge outside of Russia because we just... For some reason, the English-speaking world cannot handle the name Sergei. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that is, but... Um, so he was born into a very wealthy family... In a place called Selishchi in Novgorod Governorate right. in uh, Russia. So this was in uh, the late 1800s, 1872. Okay. And uh, his mother died and his father was a cavalry colonel and he also had a lot of money from vodka distilleries. So, you know, nice work if you can get it. Sure. After Sergei's mother died, his father married a woman who was very artistic and had a huge influence on uh, Sergei, who mm -hmm. I'm going to call him that because his last name is very complicated for me to pronounce. <laughs> um, so she really encouraged him to explore his artistic inclinations. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1890, his parents went bankrupt. Uh, so I guess people just stopped drinking vodka. <laughs> Actually, well, they basically had run up a lot of credit mm, and right, so yeah. had to declare bankruptcy. And he Sergey had a small income from his mother's death, uh, was supporting the family. So to that end, he went to study law at the Perm Gymnasium. Yep. 
So they lived in Perm, but they had an apartment in St. Petersburg and also a country estate in Big Barda. So, you know, very well off. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he also, oh, I'm sorry. He was studying a lot at St. Petersburg University and graduated from Perm Gymnasium. Okay. Like, so that was his high school. Yeah, I gotcha. Then he went to St. Petersburg University and he also took some music classes at the St. Petersburg Conservatory of Music. Hmm. Um, and he wanted to be a composer, but his professor was like, nah, dude, you suck at music. It's <laughs> so, like, don't do that. Um, while he was at university, he had like a cry cous- playing the holophoner. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, his cousin, Dmitry Philosophov, Philosophov, yeah, okay, right. good job. <laughs> By George, I think I got it. <laughs> so he was introduced to a bunch of nerds uh, who called themselves the Nevsky Pickwickians, much like in Little Women, how the girls have their own Pickwick uh-huh, papers. Uh-huh. So clearly fans of Dickens. Yeah. Um, and so these guys, they didn't immediately, you know, let him in the group, but they really helped him, uh, develop a comprehensive knowledge of Russian and Western art. He was also an art critic, um, in addition to mm. what he was mainly known for, which is, um, starting the ballets Russe, the Russian ballet. Gotcha. The first, you know, big one. Okay. Um, he uh, founded the art journal Mir Iskustva, World of Art. And mm. he then, in 1899, became special assistant to Prince Sergei Mikhailovich Volon- Volkonsky. So many Sergeys. <laughs> that would be a great name for a far set in Russia. <laughs> um, so Prince Sergei had taken over directorship of all imperial theaters, which we just learned a bit about this Uh from watching that Bolshoi Babylon. Right, right, yeah. um, About the Bolshois, who came into play way, way later in Russian history in terms of when the National Ballet developed. Mm -hmm. But um, still to this day, their arts programs are tied very closely to the government. Right, right. um, Even in this post-Soviet era. Mm so he, you know, got a bunch of his, you know, Pickwicky and friends hired. And then uh, the prince in the season of 1900 and 1901 uh, got Sergei to stage the ballet Sylvia. And uh, he and his friend uh, Benoit, I forget what his first name is, one of his friends, <laughs> They just like did this balls out production that really upset everybody. Um, everybody was very mad about how innovative it was. They wanted to be uh, only appealing to the aristocracy, which is how ballet was actually. Uh-huh. And uh, Sergei is fundamentally responsible for making the changes to ballet that made it more appealing to the lower classes. Mm. I would argue he maybe didn't do enough. Um, <laughs> But they didn't have TV, so right. much more exciting then. <laughs> um, so Prince Sergei was so mad at him <laughs> for doing this and discharged him. And the nobility were like, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, now, at the time, and they don't go into this in detail in this Wikipedia article, which is weird. Because hmm. Sergei was actually openly gay. Huh. Or as openly gay right. as you could be. Yeah. And contemporarily... <sighs> Well, I don't know. It says some of his researchers and it's not cited. Hmm. Some have suggested that his homosexuality was the source of the conflict, but they argue in this article that that is not true because everybody knew he was gay before he was invited to work for the Imperial theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so in, uh, 
1905, he did a whole exhibition of Russian portrait painting, which everybody loved. Mm-hmm. And then in 1907, he did five concerts of Russian music in Paris. And then uh, in 1908, he mounted a production of Boris Godunov, which is the inspiration for Boris Badinov yeah, yeah. Uh, from Bronchi and Bullwinkle. Mm-hmm. At the Paris Opera. So the success abroad led to the Russian uh, imperial theaters being like, well, okay, like they all think you're great. Come on back. <laughs> yeah. So um, 1909 is when he opened the ballet, the ballets. It's hard to say. I think the S is pronounced. Ballets, okay. Russes. And um, the company included a young Anna Pavlova. Oh. So he launched her career. Nice. Um, also of note, a dancer named Vaslav Nichinsky, oh. uh, who was his lover for a number of years. Oh. And um, they had a very complex relationship, apparently, <laughs> which is not gone into in any detail in here. Except to say that when Nijinsky got married, presumably to a woman, mm. uh, Sergei took it real bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, W.H. Auden put a reference to their break in one of his poems. Oh. And actually, it's the poem that the play The Normal Heart gets its title from. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but it's so weird. There's no detail in here about that yeah. relationship. Like yeah. When it started, how long it lasted. It's very odd. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he put on shit ton of ballets uh for you know basically um a decade and a half it mm-hmm. looks like mm-hmm. excuse me um but after the russian revolution he was abroad and you know he took the ballets russes out you know out in the world and toured uh-huh. so it's it, there's a clear correlation to the role the bolshoi has played yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it's very similar in terms of being cultural ambassadors for russia right right um yeah so he stayed abroad after the revolution and uh, that led to the new regime uh, condemning him in perpetuity as an especially insidious example of bourgeois decadence. Yeah. And their art historians completely wrote him out of the picture for 60 years. Oh. Which may explain in part why this is such a crappy, not comprehensive <laughs> Wikipedia article. No, but they were just like, okay, this guy who had this huge influence on visual art, on opera, on ballet, mm-hmm. just pff, gone. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's commies for you. He also, um, was a, an, uh, he was a, uh, mentor to, uh, Balanchine, mm. who, of course, left Russia to start, uh, ballet theater in, uh, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he is really at the nexus of a lot of, you know, what happened in ballet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, this is a fun story that I really like. So um, toward the end of the 19th century, there was a change in how um, rhythm and meter were handled in ballet. Uh-huh. And um, rather than doing strictly 4-4 four, four time all the time, they would switch it up. And if they would do 5-4 time, hmm. um, a choreographer named Ravel, or he might have been the music director, uh, in his ballet Daphnis and Chloe, the dancers of the ballet Russes would sing Sergei Diagolov, like to keep the time oh, yeah. five four. Um, yeah, and then this is random, but I thought also interesting. So, one of his other uh, proteges uh, was a ballet master named Serge Lefar, and he. Uh, this is much later. Mm-hmm. This is in like I think like the 30s to the 50s. Um, he basically went on a technical revival is what they're calling it, but basically going back to his methods and, and 
popularizing them. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's also credited Lefaris for saving many Jewish and other minority dancers from concentration camps oh. during World War II. Um, yeah, so the poem that uh, Auden mentions them in is September 1, 1939. Okay. And... Uh, he says, the windiest militant trash, important person shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diagolov is true of the normal heart for the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have. Not universal love, but to be loved alone. Good poem. Yeah. Good job, Auden. <laughs> um, so he was known, Diagolov was, as a hard and demanding, even frightening taskmaster. Ooh. Uh Nanette de Voila, no shrinking violet, apparently. Well, okay. Um, she Citation was too needed. afraid to ever look him in the face. <laughs> and he would have a, a cane in rehearsals and bang it when he was angry, uh-huh. which is a conceit that you see if you read The Babysitter's Club. Uh, <laughs> Jesse's ballet instructor has a big cane that she pounds out the rhythms for them for. Mm. Um, but he also was very kind. It sounds like he was very difficult to deal with in a professional capacity. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, his company got stranded in Spain during, uh, the war that was going on there. Uh, the, would that have been the, yeah, the, the one concurrent with World War One with, well, they had the Spanish civil war, but that was in the thirties. This is 1914 to 1918. Well, I think then they just got stranded there during the war. Like they couldn't go. Then why? Okay. Look, I don't know. Guys, we're sorry. We use Wikipedia sometimes. <laughs> Not always. But yeah. That's a dumb thing to call World War One. <laughs> The, no, because it says the 1914 through 18 war. So, I, yeah, I can't think. Anyway. Yeah. So he gave the last of his cash to one of the dancers to care for her daughter who was sick. And then um, another woman who was really young when she joined would call him Sergei Pops mm. uh, because he was a father figure to her. Um, yeah. So when Najinsky got married, uh, Diagolov dismissed him immediately <laughs> in 1913. So this is four years before the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nijinsky came and danced with the company again sometimes, but, uh, you know, it was not obviously. Yeah. Um, but also his magic as a dancer, Nijinsky's, was much diminished by incipient madness, oh. which makes me wonder if he had syphilis. No. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Sergei never had any money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he financed all of his projects himself and he had a rare books library, but like no nice clothes. And the film, The Red Shoes is a thinly disguised dramatization of the ballet Russes. Okay. Um, and he died in Venice, uh, in 1929, uh, of diabetes, which is good because he had a terror of his whole life dying, uh, in the water. So he never traveled by boat if he uh, could avoid it. Wow. So yeah, so it worked out, uh, as best as it could. Yeah. So, yeah, that is what all that means. So I guess what Bates is saying here <laughs> is that, you know, they they don't need uh, this crazy, you know, attention to detail on this crappy party. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like an uh, interesting dude. I'm going to say that the decorations in the servants' hall did not measure up. Oh, I feel fairly <laughs> certain that you are correct. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Back to the show. Woo! The Dowager enters the library and accuses McGee, Rosamond, and Rosamond and Isabel of plotting. McGee asks if it's really so important to keep the Crawleys in command. The, the Dowager asks if she thinks that's her sole motive, and Isabel does think, does think so. But d- the Dowager says that for years she's watched governments take control of their lives, and their argument is always lower costs, greater efficiency, but the outcome is always less control by the individual and more by the state, until the individual's wishes count for nothing, and that's what she is trying to resist. Rosamond says, by wielding your unelected power. 
Dowager says that the point of a great family is to protect freedoms, which is why the barons made King John sign the Magna Carta. Isabel concedes that the Dowager's argument was more honorable than she'd realized. Is it? <laughs> it's, you know, look, this is the same argument that rich people always use, is that protecting their own money is really protecting other people's freedoms. But she doesn't even, you know, I mean, she says individual freedoms, but to me, in the context of how she says it, it doesn't feel like she's applying the word individuals to others. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, Rosman points out that it is no longer 1215. What? <laughs> it's not like it was before all the wars. <laughs> oh, come on. There were some wars before that. There were. Uh, and that the strength of their families is going. The Dowager says that her great-grandchildren won't thank her when the state is all-powerful because they didn't fight. Rosamond tartly points out that she's not going to have any great-grandchildren so she can live with that. Uh, which is great. Yeah. Rosamond, honestly, Rosamond should get more points than Maggie Smith in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, right. recognizing that that's impossible. Obviously. Mathematically. Understood. Lord Grantham comes in with Branson and Edith and says that the Carsons have just arrived so they can go down whenever Mary gets there. McGee asks if he told Mary about Pig Farm. Branson did. And she's annoyed, but less cross than she might have been. Again, thanks for showing us, <laughs> not telling us. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham thanks the others for coming. And Isabel says that they couldn't miss Carson's return. And Mrs. Carson. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. People get it together. People have been changing their names for millions of years. <laughs> The Dowager says that she can't get her tongue around it, and McGee says they'll just have to learn. It's a lot easier than Diaghilev. Right? Get it together. <laughs> Bates can even say that, and he's an idiot. <laughs> Mary rushes in and says they ought to go down. She could hear them shouting from her bedroom, and the Dowager says she hasn't been to the kitchen for at least 20 years, and Isabel asks if she has her passport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more of Isabel and, you know, the Dowager just sniping about normal things. Exactly. Thomas whispers to Andy to make sure that Lord Grantham has, has a drink as the family walks in. Branson asks the Dowager if it's changed much since her day. The Dowager says that she'll need Ariadne's thread to find her way out. Rosamond asks when Edith will appoint her new editor. Branson asks why she doesn't just make herself the editor, and Edith says she'd like to be a sort of co-editor, which no man would accept, so she's going to try and find a woman. She doesn't want to be a co-editor. She just wants to be the boss. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Look, she's just feeling her way through. She is. Isabel applauds her. The Dowager says, of course you do, and assumes they can look forward to woman field marshals and a woman pope. Um, why would she care? She's Church of England. <laughs> Let those papists do their own thing. <laughs> Mary says that she thinks it's a good idea. It is, after all, a magazine for women. Edith says that they should congratulate the Carsons. Rosamond says it was nice of Mary to praise Edith's plan, and Mary says a monkey will type out the Bible if you leave it long enough. That is not what the saying is. Well, it is for Mary. <laughs> Rosamond They're my monkeys. <laughs> They'll type out the Bible if I tell them to. <laughs> Foster monkeys. <laughs> I won't let this estate be run into the ground. <laughs> this is important work. <laughs> In the beginning, there was Maud, you stupid monkey. <laughs> Rosamond goes to the Carsons and apologizes for missing the wedding. She then tells Mary that Mrs. Carson is like Jane Eyre being called Mrs. Rochester, uh, which, you know, I'm sure she would have been in Jane Eyre, too. Mm -hmm. The Erinning. <laughs> <laughs> 
but spelled H-E-I-R. Oh, well, ah, there you go. Pun. The air air. Yeah, because, you know, um, that book was a, just a barrel of laughs. <laughs> and anyway, they agree that none of them will ever get used to it. Molesley asks Baxter when the trial will be, and he doesn't know, and he says, Coyle can't hurt her now. Baxter says, can't he? No! No, he can't. He's in police company! <laughs> and even if he did get out, why would he bother with you, you old milksop? Yeah. You're no fun anymore. That's right. You're not going to steal no jewels. <laughs> Rosamond tells Lord Grantham that, that the Dowager slipped away and that she's not going to give up about the hospital. Lord Grantham says that he wouldn't think she'd given up if he was attending her funeral. And Rosamond says, you know, she might end up being at Lord Grantham's funeral. What Tom- with all his port-related injuries. <laughs> <laughs> port injuries. Thomas hands Carson a drink, and Carson asks if there's anything to report, and Thomas says that being a butler is more complicated than he'd realized. Carson says then he's used his time well. McGee tells Mrs. Hughes that their cottage is ready, and Lord Grantham says that she must let them know if anything needs to be done, Mrs. Mrs. Carson. <laughs> Carson asks if it will be confusing uh, if there are Carson and Mrs. Carson, rather, as they resisted Anna being called Mrs. Bates. So there is a precedent. Uh, he asks if they could keep Hughes's name, and Lord Grantham says, Hallelujah, and proposes a toast. Rosamond says there really is a God. And I'm like, no, that's an appropriate statement to make when the heir to the estate miraculously regains use <laughs> of his nethers and his legs. <laughs> you know, I lost my faith when my husband died. But then we all agreed that Mrs. Hughes could still be called <laughs> Mrs. Hughes. <laughs> and I believed again. Anna says it's a relief. Mosley says especially for Lord Grantham. I want to punch everyone. Yeah. Carson tells Mrs. Hughes that he wants to check his room and make sure they've taken everything. He heads upstairs, and this is maybe the best scene of the whole episode. Yeah, yeah. He heads upstairs. He looks at his room for a moment. He closes the door. He takes his name out of the nameplate and then just walks away. Yeah. And Jim Carter mm-hmm. is fucking amazing. Looks yeah. such a good actor. Yeah, yeah. Such a good actor. Really good. Really, really good. He's gotten nominations. He has gotten nominations. <laughs> we also nominate you, sir, but not in the Abbey Awards today. No, we don't really happens. have many that like cater to his specialty. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so to start off, worst decision. And that goes to Officer Bummer. For showing up. Yeah, for showing up, for dragging Baxter into anything, for like, thinking that she could be any use. You've already got all of these other witnesses. Yeah. Like, leave us be. Just have Coyle killed or whatever, and let's all move yeah, on. Yeah, it worked out great when Mr. Green just died. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Best Evasion. Uh, we're going to give it to Anna mm-hmm. for evading her miscarriage. That's right. Even though she contradicted doctor's orders. Yeah. Uh, we're still on her side. Yeah. Next up, worst overbite. That one's actually going to Thomas. Yes, he was quite rude to Gwen. He was. And we did not appreciate it. We very much didn't. I guess, you know, Mary would have been a runner-up on that one, but, you know. Well, but she, you know, she was only snobbish after the fact. You know what I mean? And she got chastened later. She did get chastened. Yeah. Oh, she got chastened for her pettishness. (laughs) That sounds like Pootie Tang. (laughs) I got chastened for the pettishness. (laughs) It really does. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. And that goes to, in a surprise move, McGee. Yeah. This was a very inconsistent episode across every person. Yeah. All the people we looked at we were like, well. Because it's like Edith basically was wearing like a seafoam green Spider-Man outfit at dinner. <laughs> yeah. And like. And she had that like 
sweater vest looking. Oh, yeah. She looked like a school arm. Yeah. Like, that was rough. Mary was, like, very bland. Yeah. She fared better than many other people. The Dowager just hasn't quite nailed it for us. Yeah. And Isabel just keeps running with the middle of the pack so much that we don't want to assign her either way. Yeah. McGee had a very lovely red beaded evening gown. She mm-hmm. had a really cute seashell hair comb. Yeah. Um... Uh, she had a really nice couple of more casual outfits in some of right. the luncheon yeah. scenes. So yeah, yeah. nice job, excuse me, Mick G. Yeah. And now the Fashion Backwards Award for Backward Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. And that goes to Rosamond. Oh, man. She looked a mess. She looked she like a carpet bag. She did. In that her first, first scene. Yeah. And then, like, she keeps doing these sheer, like, overlays with horizontal stripes yeah or just, just like awful. weird patterns that aren't even patterns yeah, and like terrible yeah she's well you know we're glad she's around she's always good for a back yeah <laughs> next up the cutest baby award uh no babies no in babies. this episode so we're taking a bye week yeah. there weren't even any cute animals and no one was acting particularly petulant yeah or at least not in a cute way yeah so that award will roll over to next week yes. when it will be double cutest baby time <laughs> And finally, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. We went with a three on this one. Yeah, she had some good remarks in her exchanges with Lady Shackleton. Yeah. Uh, I think it was really Shackleton's presence might have been what bumped her up. But just still not. Just she's she's not. She's not rising to the occasion. Yeah, spinning her wheels a bit. Come on. Get it together, Max. Here, here. I know it's not your it's not your no, fault, Max. It's certainly not, your fault. not her fault. Yeah. And I mean she's still better than everyone else. Right. So of course. so yeah. she's got that going. All right. So uh we will see you next week. Until next time. Up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out.